Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is Episode 10, State of the Nation. Thanks for listening in. So last week we covered Kievan Rus during the reigns of Yaropolk and his murderer and successor Vladimir, who went on to convert both himself and his subjects to Orthodox Christianity, whilst also finding time to further enlarge Rus' territory and produce enough heirs, and some would say too many, and make a note of that for the future, to ensure that the Rurikid dynasty would be able to continue and perhaps even flourish. This week I'm going to pause the chronological narrative and take a look at what kind of state Kievan Rus actually was, circa 1015 or there or thereabouts, and how it had developed to get to that point. And this is something that I'll be doing every so often going forward, just taking a bit of a step back from the main events, taking a bit of a checkpoint or snapshot. And then the plan was to use the second part of the episode to look at how Vladimir's sons shaped the impressive legacy that had been left to them. But as you probably know, plans change. Or as one of the characters says in the brilliant Mexican film, Amores Peros, we plan and God laughs. So, in what will be a slightly shorter episode than normal, we'll just do the state of the nation, and then next week give Sviatopolk, Yaroslav, and the other brothers, but mainly Sviatopolk and Yaroslav, the attention that they deserve. Just before I start though, I've got a couple of minor corrections to make regarding the last episode. The rot set in when I mused about whether or not Vladimir had sent his Norwegian troops back to Harald in Norway, when I should have said Harkon. I then went on to talk about Dnieper raids instead of rapids, messed up the word baptism, and finally stumbled badly when trying to pronounce the name of one of Vladimir's sons, Mstislav. There, got it perfect this time. So, must do better is my own verdict, so let's see if I can hold it all together this week. Okay, let's get on with things. 
So we've been going for 10 episodes now. Well, 11, including this one. And apart from the introduction and the first two episodes, which provided background and context, we've covered the Rus Nation, or Confederation, from its nascent beginnings in or around the year 862 up to the year 1015, which is just over the 150-year mark. And if we convert that to a modern-day equivalent timescale, we'd get a period that takes us from the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 to the present day. So in this century and a half, we've seen Vikings become Varangians and end up as the Rus. We've looked at the main characters, who they were and what they got up to, or what the primary chronicle tells us they got up to, who they fought with and why, who they traded with, and the dominance of Byzantium in that respect. And finally, the arrival of Christianity, a higher profile and acceptance of Kievan Rus as a major player and the largest territory in the region. If we step back a bit, what, what do we imagine when we think of the Kievan state in 1015? What kind of place was it? Who were the Rus? What kind of lives did they lead? And what were their aims, hopes and fears? And importantly, what were the key things that had changed or developed over the period in question that had got it and them to this point? They're the main themes I want to develop, but I also want to look at some of the basics. For example, what was the state called? Which languages were spoken? Did they read and write? And if so, what did they use for an alphabet? And also, what was the monetary system, if indeed there was one? The main reason that I want to do all of this is that the received history, related by Nestor and the other chroniclers, just seems a bit simplistic, narrow, and at times, well, just a bit, bit weird. So let's go back and look at what kick-started all of this roost thing off. And to do that, we need to go back to what was going on in Scandinavia in the late 8th century. Because at some point during that time, something happened that triggered groups of raiders to start travelling in their ships and boats across the seas to their west, south and east. Now there are various theories as to what this trigger point or catalyst was. Civil unrest, climate change, over-oppressive kings, or maybe just plain old greed mixed up with opportunity and a sense of adventure. But whatever it was, more and more of these ships started to make more and more journeys. And predominantly, Vikings from the west and south of Scandinavia, say modern-day Norway and Denmark, travelled south and west across the North Sea and raided and pillaged their way through Britain, Ireland and France, before then striking out across the Atlantic and settling in the Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, and even for a time in Newfoundland, establishing a loose, mainly maritime-based commonwealth. In Britain, the Danes had taken almost the whole of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of England, which was the richest part of this so-called commonwealth. Only Wessex in the southwest provided any kind of realistic opposition, and then a treaty was agreed by Alfred the Great and the Danish leader Guthrum in the late 9th century, or 878 to be precise, which gave the Danes most of the East and North, known as the Dane Law, and importantly also saw the Danish leader convert to Christianity, or whether he did so 100% willingly is another matter. We then see Alfred's son, Edward, his daughter, Ethelfled, uh, who's an amazing woman, by the way, and well worth reading about, and his grandsons, Athelstan and Edmund, 
claw back most of the Saxon realm from the Danes. And then between about 840 and 880, we have a brief period of calm before the raids start up again, coinciding with the disastrous reign of Ethelred Unred, known as the Unready, and featuring several instances of money, or Danegeld as it was called, being paid to the Danes just to try and make them go away, which of course only worked for a while, and then they'd come back and they'd ask for more. So by 1015, Saxon England is on its knees and the Danish king Knut is about to take over and establish, well actually what was surprisingly a short-lived Scandinavian ruling house in England because by 1042, the Saxons are back in charge under the rule of Edward the Confessor. But hang on a minute, was Edward a Saxon? Well, yes, sort of. I mean, he was Ethelred's son, but his mother Emma was a Norman. And who were the Normans? That's right. Descendants of the Vikings who had first settled in what came to be called Normandy under a leader called Rollo, who then carved off this part of northern France into a separate kingdom, or dukedom to be precise. The Saxons then have a very short period back in total control, just a few months actually in 1066, before Duke William of Normandy, aka the Conqueror, aka the Bastard, invades and takes over. Yeah, so okay, this is all very interesting, but what has any of this got to do with the Varangians and the Rus? Well, there are some interesting parallels and some key differences. First off, the Vikings from the eastern part of Scandinavia start raiding to, well, obviously the east and the south in the region of the Baltic Sea. But then as now, they are drawn into the Novgorod region and then down to Kiev, which is even nearer to the greatest power and trading centre in Europe the Byzantine Empire, and we've talked about this long and often in, in past episodes. And the accepted story is that the Vikings under their mythical leader Rurik were invited by Slavic tribes living in the Novgorod area to come and rule over them, which almost certainly didn't happen, and is just one of the many examples of primary chronicle propaganda, as seem to be the lives and times of Rurik's successors, Oleg and Igor. But by the time we get to Olga and Sviatoslav, the history is based more upon historical fact and the propaganda is merely an undertone, and so events and times seem more trustworthy. Also note that by this time the names of the main players have become completely Slavicized, suggesting that assimilation between the Slavs and the Vikings happened quickly, and without any rancour on either side. And this surely must have been something to do with the, the numbers of Norsemen, uh, the limited numbers of Norsemen, Norsemen, as opposed to the numbers of Slavs. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And these roofs, like their Western counterparts, were adept at trading, raiding, pillaging, and amassing territory. Mainly because of, A, they've got Byzantium on their doorstep, and B, there's just so much territory around them. And all of the existing players in the region either migrate, Bulgars, Magyars, or get swallowed up, the Khazars and the Drevlians. So a pretty similar story in both the East and West, but what are those key differences I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, and, and where does this leave us? So first off, the Western Vikings established a mainly maritime empire, in and around mainly rich and ordered kingdoms, whilst the Eastern Vikings established their rule over a mainly land-based, mainly disordered set of tribes. Secondly, the Western Vikings fought, fought and fought again to gain their territory. Whilst it seems like the Varangians were either invited to come and establish order or just establish themselves without any major opposition. And then thirdly, Assimilation and merger between peoples takes place across the whole of the Rus territories in less than 100 years, and it's the host nation, the Slavs, that become the dominant partner. In the West, and in the main, the Vikings remain a separate people for much longer. And then finally, Christianity, with its rich tradition of annals and chronicles, was already in, the place, in place in the West whilst the East was pagan during the first Varangian incursions, with the exception of Byzantium, of course. And I think that this leads to the fact that in the West, history is just recorded more, and we get to real grips with, with the characters, and it just seems more exciting. And also we have a, you know, a much richer base of contemporary knowledge to draw upon, um, the characters feel sort of real, whilst in the East, all we have is chronicles written at a much later date, which we know are either down to fabrications or a mixture of fact and myth, which give the whole Kievan Rus Pontic steppe thing a strangely surreal and mysterious air, which is difficult to fully get your head around. I mean, what do we really know of Rurik, Oleg and Igor? Not a whole lot. And it's only some 100 odd years after the supposed founding of the first Rus state that we finally get a physical description of one of the people in charge, the slightly piratical Sviatoslav. Whereas in the West, we have a much more rounded and descriptive profiles of Alfred the Great and his descendants, plus various Danish and Norwegian Vikings like Guthrum, Halfdan, Svein Fortbeard, Eric the Red and Harald Hardrada. So let's spend the rest of this episode attempting to demystify Kievan Rus a bit and make it feel a bit less opaque. I suppose the first thing we need to look at is the name Kievan Rus. It didn't exist during that time, uh, or certainly not the period we're covering. Uh, and like the term Byzantine Empire, it was a construct of later historians. This confederation of Slavic tribes was simply referred to as the Rus lands, or in early Slavic, Rusiskaya Zemle. And in 1015, these Rus lands were by far the largest, I'll put this in inverted commas, country in Europe. It reached its greatest extent in the mid 11th century, stretching from the White Sea in the north to the Black Sea in the south, and from the headwaters of the Vistula in the west 
to the Taman Peninsula in the east. And, and don't worry, I'll stick a map up on, on the website that will show uh, the British territories at their greatest extent. The capital and largest city was Kiev, which had a population, and it's difficult, this is a guesstimate, but around 30,000. And then next came Novgorod up in the north with around 10,000. And then we have a handful of smaller cities or large towns such as Smolensk, Polotsk, Rostov and Ryazan, with between two and 5,000 inhabitants each. The people who lived in these towns and cities and the myriad number of small villages and farms that dotted the countryside and who were known as the Rus were an amalgam of Norse raiders and Slavic, Baltic and Finnic tribes who in the main spoke various dialects of a language called Old East Slavic and for those that could use a variation of the Cyrillic alphabet mentioned a couple of episodes ago to read and write. As in the West at this time, though, most people could do neither, and so the alphabet would have been mainly used by churchmen who used it for their own language, Old Church Slavonic, which I guess is the equivalent of Latin, really, in, in the Eastern world. Then hierarchically, going from top to bottom, there were first of all the princes and their retinues, who were descendants of the Slavic and Scandinavian, Scandinavian elites. And then we had leading soldiers and officials who received income and land from the princes in return for their political and military services. And of course, with the coming of Christianity, we have a ready-made hierarchy of metropolitans, archbishops, priests and monks. And whilst Kievan society lacked the class institutions and autonomous towns that were typical of Western European feudalism, urban merchants, artisans and labourers sometimes exercised political influence through a city assembly. Uh, otherwise known as the Vecce, or council, which included all the adult males in the population. But making up the bulk of the population were a class of tribute-paying farmers or peasants, called Smierds, who were free but owed labour duty to the princes, a bit similar to the feudal system in the West. And then right at the bottom were the slaves. I talked about what were the aims, hopes and fears of these people, well, the main aim of those in the bottom two groups was safety, survival and getting enough food to eat. I suppose a bit like today. And for those at the top, the acquisition of further wealth and territory. And talking of wealth, what did these Rus use for currency? Well, there's no evidence at this stage that any of the early Rus princes minted their own coins. In fact, they used either imported coins from Byzantium or the Arab lands, and the most common of these was the silver dirham. Or they used a system of gold and silver bars of various weights called Ruvina, Kuna, Veksha and Rezana. So by 1015, the odd Pechenegg raid apart, we have a mainly peaceful, settled confederation of Slavic-based Rus clans which formed the largest political entity in Europe and are ruled over by the Grand Prince in Kiev. Trade with Byzantium continues to drive the whole machine and the Rus are respected as equals amongst their neighbours and seen as a serious player in the region. Orthodox Christianity has become part of the fabric and life of life and churches and cathedrals are springing up across the land, although unfortunately none of these survived. In fact, no buildings in this era have survived at all. Okay, 
shorter than usual. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to leave it there for this week. Uh, join me next week when we'll look at what happened when Vladimir's sons got their first taste of real responsibility. Before I go, though, just a quick reminder that the podcast website is historyofrussia, or one word, dot podbean.com. And there you can find some usual uh, useful visual aids such as maps and timelines. And, and I will put up a map of uh, Kievan Rus uh, in the 11th century. And then if you want to get in touch, then you can in a number of different ways via the website, as just mentioned, or via Twitter, at HistoryRussia1. And then there's good old email if you've got a question, uh, nordicworldoutlook.com. Or you can follow me or subscribe on whichever platform you listen in on. Okay, until next time then, stay safe, look after yourself, and I'll see you soon. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.